Wow, it sounds like everybody came back from youth camp. Good morning, good morning, good morning. So great. I love that our church has uh, little ones, like, you know, a few weeks old, a few months old, to kids, to teenagers, and then uh, singles, and married, and retired, and grandparents. It's really a cool um, part of our community, I think, to be multi-generational the way that we are. When Evelyn and I, Evelyn's my wife, when Evelyn and I have some time, uh, free time, uh, like when our kids go to youth camp, for example, one of the things that we enjoy doing is backpacking, going off into the mountains, Sierra Nevadas, desolation wilderness, those kinds of places. And I know that there are some people here that have also gone backpacking. I know there was a group of GRX women that went out on a women's trip. The, the women at GRX here are awesome. You guys are mighty. Um, I'm not, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I wasn't going to make fun of the guys, but guys, I didn't get any takers this year. Okay, love you guys. When we go out there, we, of course, carry all the stuff that we're going to use when we stay out there. We set the tent up, we get the stove going, we purify the water. But one of the activities that we uh, do is fish. We enjoy fishing when we're out there. And the way that we fish is we'll uh, use these flies. Um, They're not real flies. They're flies that are tied with uh, thread little twine, and we put it on the end of the line, and you throw it out there. And when you're out in the beautiful mountains, Sierra Nevadas, there's a little bit of snow on the mountaintops, and you're there, and the lake is just glassy, what you see out in the middle of the lake, and even along the shoreline, are these small little circles that come up. And it's almost like someone took a pebble and dropped it in, and then those little concentric rings sort of start going out. Now, if you're just looking, you're thinking, well, I wonder wonder what that is. Is there somebody throwing rocks or something? But what that actually is in a mountain lake is that there are trout that are in that lake, and they are coming up from the bottom, and they are feeding they're hitting the, um, the little mosquitoes that are landing on the top, or the little bumblebees or little black ant that might fall in there. So if you see a glassy mountain lake, and you see these little rings coming out like this, it means that that lake's got fish in it. So Evelyn and I are out, and we're fishing, and we're casting. Now, if you've ever fished, there's a phenomenon that happens, and when you fish... Um, It's not called catching, it's called fishing, which means every time you throw your line out there and the fly goes out into the lake, even if you throw it very, very close to one of these rings where you know there's a fish, it doesn't always mean that the fish is going to catch your lure. It doesn't always mean that you're going to catch a fish, but you're throwing your line out you're continuing to be active with the anticipation that at some point, you'll catch a fish. At some point, your hope will be realized. Now, when I think about fishermen, 
and fisher women, fisher people. I don't even know what the PC way to say it is now. People who fish. When you, when you talk to people who fish, they are some of the most hopeful people out there. Because there's a lot of times where you'll fish, you'll spend the whole day fishing, and you won't catch anything. And then there's days where you'll fish, and maybe there'll be a lot of fish that you catch. Or maybe there'll be a day that you fish, and you only get one or two. But fishing, as you fish, and you participate in fishing, it's active. Because you're certainly not going to catch any fish if you're just sitting on the side of the shore, just watching the rings. Now, I sort of throw that out as a very, very poor analogy to perhaps how it might feel like when we pray. Because we're going to look at a passage in Scripture, and it's actually one of the parables that Jesus tells about prayer. And I was thinking about prayer and fishing, and it feels like sometimes prayer feels a little bit like that, like we're casting our prayers out. And sometimes our hopes are realized, and sometimes they're not. And why does a fish sometimes catch a fly and sometimes it doesn't? And why does God sometimes answer prayer and why does God sometimes not? But what we're going to see in this parable is that Jesus invites us to be hopeful and also active. Regardless of whether we think we're actually, the outcome is, is there, that Jesus is actually in this parable teaching us to participate by the act of praying and to not lose heart, but to be hopeful, hopeful that God is at work. And so with that, let's turn to our scripture that we're going to look at today. And the main point of this message is always pray. Don't lose heart. Always pray. Don't lose heart. Is there a slide for that, Steph? Yeah. Um, so if you are recovering from youth camp or you just had a crazy rockiness weekend and you pulled an all-nighter, this is the main point of this message. <laughs> this is also the application, which typically comes at the end of a message. This is also the response, which the parable calls us, Jesus' parables call us for a response. So this is also the response. Always pray, don't lose heart. You can write this down on your little thing if you want to. And then if you are really tired, you can just lay your head down next to the person and let my soothing voice lull you to sleep. I'll wake you up when it's time for communion. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. It says this. I'm going to read the whole parable, and then there's a bunch of cultural things, so I'm going to go back through and walk us through it. Here is Jesus teaching, and the cool thing about this parable is he actually tells us why he's teaching this parable. So Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, it begins like this. And he, Jesus, told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he, the judge, refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming.'" 
And the Lord, Jesus, said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? All right, so that was a lot of words right there. And there were a lot of things going on with Jesus teaching that parable. And so that's why I'm going to walk us back through it a little bit more slowly. Some of you who've read a lot of your Bible might have seen this parable before and read this or even studied it. And some of you guys, this this might be the very first time you're ever seeing this kind of teaching. And so I'm going to walk through it a little bit more slowly because there's some cultural things that I think are important to understand. Like, what is this? to more deeply understand what is going on. And if you have a, your Bible, maybe on your phone or something, and you want to, you can turn to Luke 18, 1 to 8, because I'll be sharing about this, but not necessarily showing the slide which, which has the scripture on it. So Jesus begins in Luke 18, 1, and it says this, and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so right here at the beginning is what I shared was the main point of this whole thing. Always to pray, don't lose heart. That's why Jesus is telling this parable. He's telling this parable to encourage the disciples and the people that are around. Now, now why would Jesus need to do this? What would be going on with the people around Jesus. They would need to hear this message. The people around Jesus would need to hear this because they were discouraged. They were discouraged and in danger of losing heart. Now, if you look back a little bit, this is Luke 18, but if you look back a little bit into Luke 17, you actually have this question that people pose to Jesus that are right around him. And they ask Jesus in Luke 17, 20, they say, When will the kingdom of God come? When will the Savior, when will the Messiah come? Because what's going on politically and culturally around Jesus at this time is that the Jews are in in, um, the Israel area and they are occupied by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is this foreign power from their perspective, an invading foreign power that is oppressing them politically socially, economically, culturally, even financially with the taxation. So the people that are around Jesus, the Jews, his followers, are like, Jesus, we are under this political oppression. When will the kingdom of God come? We've been praying for it. When will the Messiah come? When will our Savior come who will throw out the Romans? who will rescue us politically, who will rescue us from oppression. And in their waiting, and in their waiting, there's discouragement. When will God free us? Now, what's really kind of ironic is people are asking, when will our Savior come? When will our Messiah come? And they're actually asking Jesus, who, when we look back on it, we know he's the Messiah. But he didn't come in a political way. He didn't come in an economic way. He didn't come in a military way. 
But that's a whole other message. We'll have to unpack that later. Anyway, this is what they're waiting. They're like, we're waiting for the kingdom. It's not here. How long? We've been praying about it forever. It's very easy to lose heart. So Jesus says, always pray. Wait for God. Don't lose heart. Okay, and now to the parable itself. Jesus says about this prayer, about not losing heart, Jesus says, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. She kept coming to him and say, give me justice. So you've got these two people squaring off in the parable, the judge and the widow. Um, Just before I go a little bit further, does anyone here happen to be a judge? Um, You can just put your hand up so I can see. Um, Okay, that's good. That's good. Because you're going to get thrown under the bus in just a a second. Um, Or if you're married to a judge. um, uh, Okay, anyway. So Jesus throws this judge under the bus. This judge is not a good guy. He's not a good guy because he doesn't have respect for other people and he doesn't fear God. Now, if you are in a, in, a, in a California, U.S. culture, and you're thinking about judges, you might go, oh, he doesn't respect people, he, he, he doesn't fear God. You might think with our U.S. culture, you might go, well, that's a good judge because that judge is without bias. He doesn't respect people, so he's not afraid of people's opinion of him, and, and he doesn't care about God. He doesn't, he's, he's, he's unflappable. And if, if you were looking at, at this judge from our cultural lens and you think, this is a great judge, he, he's, he's unbiased, you could think that, that that's, that's in your freedom to think that, um, you'd, be, you'd be wrong, but you could think that, you think that. Okay, why do I say you'd be wrong? Because Jesus is telling us, and so Jesus is telling us in light of Scripture, and when the judges were set up in light of Scripture, and especially the judges for the Hebrew people, it's that the judges were actually supposed to fear God. And this is an indication that Jesus says, this is not a good judge, because this judge didn't fear God. But we see in Scripture that the judges are set up for the people of Israel, and they're supposed to fear God. Back in 2 Chronicles, when King Jehoshaphat, this is Old Testament, back in 2 Chronicles, when King Jehoshaphat was um, appointed to set up the judges, God told him, that you would appoint judges in the land in all the fortified cities of Judah. I'm reading from 2 Chronicles 19 here. And he says, Consider what you are doing, for you judge not on behalf of human beings, but on the Lord's behalf. He is with you in giving judgment. It's saying the Lord is with you when you give judgment. And then it says this to the judges, Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you and take care what you do. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you and take care of what you do. That is the mandate of the judges in Scripture. That is the mandate. Fearing God doesn't mean like I'm afraid of God. Fearing God means to be in awe of God, to have wonder around God, to respect God. In Acts chapter 10, there's a famous character named Cornelius. He's Italian of the Italian cohort. He was a soldier. And it said of, of Cornelius and his household that he feared God, that he feared God. See, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, that fearing God, having awe and wonder for God is a good thing. 
But we have this judge, and he doesn't fear God. And so he's not a good dude. So he's in one corner. In the other corner, you have the widow. Now, now a lot of times you might think, well, kind of widow in our culture, um, maybe an older person. But again, in this time, in the first century, sometimes the lifespan of people are very short. She might have actually been a young woman. It's a patriarchal society. Without her husband, she would have then no one in that society to be her advocate. She would have no one to fight for her, no one to protect her, no one to be her mantle of protection. And especially in the judicial system, you would need to have a man to come and fight for you. But she doesn't have someone fighting for her. She doesn't have an advocate. She doesn't have an intermediary. And so it would be unusual, but she goes herself. They go, she goes herself. And the judge is neglecting her. And over and over again in Scripture, we see don't neglect orphans, don't neglect widows, because they don't have advocates, because they don't have people that will be intermediaries for them. So this judge, who's not a good dude, is actually neglecting this widow. And what's shocking and even surprising is even though the widow maybe even culturally doesn't feel like she has a place to do this, she has incredible courage and audacity, and you could even say hope, to keep coming before the judge who is not a good guy. So that's what's surprising. That's what's so incredible about this parable, that she keeps coming. And then the parable continues in verse 4. And for a while the judge refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, because I'm not a good dude, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so this judge, he begins to change But it's not that he has a change of heart. He's actually in it for self-preservation. He's actually kind of scared of this woman. I love the translations. It says, I'm afraid that she will beat me down by her continual coming. The New International Version says it this way. I will see that she gets justice so that she eventually won't come and attack me. My favorite uh, translation is what Peterson uses in the message, where he says, I'd better do something, otherwise I'm going to end up beaten black and blue by her pounding. <laughs> Does, um, are people familiar with something called MMA? <laughs> MMA, it's short for mixed martial arts, and usually the people that are really good are the ground and pound um, wrestlers and, and, and uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Like, I'm imagining this one hulking judge on one side and this kind of smallish woman without an advocate on the other side, and they're squaring off, and all of a sudden, she like puts him in this arm bar or a choke maneuver, and he taps out. 
He's like, I give up, I give up, I surrender, I surrender. Because that's the language that's being used here. That's the language that Jesus is using here. And if you guys study this this week or next week in your life groups, I'd encourage you to look at different versions of Scripture and read this verse. How are different Scripture editors making an interpretive decision on this passage? But a lot of the people are adopting what most of the theologians adopt here is that this is a language that's actually a fighting language. This is actually a boxing language that's being used here. And that's why these translations go this direction. That's what seems to be going on here. And then Jesus concludes the parable. And the Lord said, Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. I'm going to give her justice. That's what the unrighteous judge says. And then he does a comparison. And will God not give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, a question, will he find faith on earth? Because he tells them, always pray, do not lose heart. But when you're not getting what you want, and it even feels just, and it even feels right, will you continue to pray, or will you give up? Will we continue to pray, or will we continue to give up? And I think that's particularly for us in two ways. Will we continue to pray or will we continue to give up? And I'm going to offer two brief reflections on this parable in particular about what happens with respect to praying. Um, If you could put the next thing up there, and it says the first reflection is praying for justice. When you look out on the world... This is sort of more of a global kind of question, a global kind of reflection. What do you see? What do you see? As followers of Jesus, or or maybe just not even followers of Jesus, you might just be about social justice, or care for the poor, or care for people who are in resource-poor situations or are oppressed. Like, the prayer for justice, the prayer for release from oppression— the prayer for political freedom. I mean, that's what, that's what was going on for the people that were around Jesus. And I would say when we look out on our world, that's a prayer that we can continue to pray, that we do continue to pray. We say, God, how long will injustice reign in our world? In a couple of Sundays from now, um, I'm really excited because um, there's a guest speaker who's coming, Brian Wall, and he is involved with an organization called Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, B-A-A-T-C. And we as a church support their organization, and we um, let them use office space in our ministry center. But so Brian's going to be preaching in a couple of weeks. Brian, in the Bay Area Anti-Trafficking Coalition, like he is working in anti-trafficking, anti-human trafficking locally bringing together resources and supporting people, people who are rescued, working for justice. But that's just not happening here. It's happening globally, working in anti-human trafficking. How do we participate with that? How do we pray for God's justice to come? Economic, political, social, spiritual. How do we pray for justice? 
Because justice, what is justice? Justice, the right use of power. That's what justice is. Justice is the right use of power. And judges who impart that justice do so in light of the worship and honor and fear of God because they are accountable to God for the correct use of their power. That's what justice is, that the correct use of power would be expressed. And we hope for this. Now, also as a church, as GRX, we participate in this. We participate in justice, in the right use of power. When we go and partner with City Team and feed um, lunch and talk with and pray with homeless men and women, we are participating in that right form of justice. When we go out to gleanings in January, when a group of us, we go out and prepare food that goes and then gets shipped all over the world, that's an economic justice that we participate in. When we go to the Philippines, when we work um, and serve in the orphanage that's there with Kids International, when we prepare and help give money for them to have a school, that's all of this. Kids club, tutoring in the elementary school, that's all a part of justice. And we're praying for justice while we actually actively participate in justice, both in prayer and in our participation. But then here's the second reflection that this parable brings up. It actually brings up something that I call the dilemma of waiting. And this is perhaps the most difficult thing about praying. Because when we pray, we're in this place where we're waiting and we're praying for something to happen. And then, this is the dilemma. When you're waiting, there's really only two things that will emerge from this. Really, in the broad umbrella of things. It will either be, I've waited too long. I'm going to give up. I'm going to lose heart. Or, wow, I've been waiting a really long time, but I'm going to stay the course and be hopeful and endure. I mean, there's ways to kind of parse it a little bit more, but when you're waiting, I mean, isn't this true? If you're praying for something to happen, Maybe there's someone in your family who you love and you're praying that that they might have an encounter with Jesus and and come to know God's love for them in their life. Last week, we talked about forgiveness. You might be praying about forgiveness for a very long time in your life. And and you're you're just like, wow, this is not happening. There's two outcomes. You can either lose heart or you can continue going. And this is the message. Jesus says, always pray and don't lose heart. Always pray and don't lose heart. That's what Jesus is trying to teach here. You might agree with that or or not agree with that, but that's what Jesus is trying to teach. Now, I'm going to do something really cheesy right now. Can you just turn to the person next to you and just say, always pray, don't lose heart.
always pray. Don't lose heart. Right? That was cheesy. Right? That was cheesy. Why, why did you do that? I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I did that. Let me tell you, though, in the dilemma of waiting, if you are waiting and you've, you've lost heart, let me tell you a few more specific ways where this shows up. If you've lost heart, it can express itself in a number of ways. It can express itself in self-pity, in victimhood. I prayed and prayed and prayed, and I didn't get this. I'm the victim. It can also show up in a more aggressive way. Anger, lashing out. I prayed all this time, and God didn't give me anything. Kind of like the older son and the prodigal son. I served you my whole life, and you didn't even give me anything to party with my friends. Right? Angry, lashing out, losing heart, giving up. Um, forget the church. Forget it. Passive aggressive. I am done waiting. I'm going to walk away. Not talk to anybody. So what happens. People leave the faith. People give up. They lose heart. That's what happens. These are the different ways. Do you know people who have done any of these things? Um, you don't have to point them out. I mean, just <laughs> think about it. Um, do you do any of these things? Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. When we don't get what we want, Jesus says, pray, pray. And here's something that happens in prayer. When we pray, the aggressive anger or the self-pity or the victimhood, the discouragement that makes our heart hard, that makes us begin to lose our heart, in prayer, that heart begins to loosen. It begins to loosen. And it begins to loosen because in prayer, we begin to place ourselves before God and come to God as honestly as we are. Even in anger, that is great because God can receive our anger. But we come to God as honestly as we are and we bring our heart before God. And then God, by his grace and his mercy, begins to soften and loosen that hardness of heart. Because we begin to see things from the perspective of how God begins to see things. And that's what happens in prayer. So the hardness of our heart begins to loosen. That is one of the reasons why I've wanted our church to do a silent retreat. And uh, if you were here earlier for Mo's announcement, it was a great announcement. And I know you guys tease me about the silent retreat, right? Right? Because it's like, you guys throw me under the bus on it all the time. And that's fine, because I love you guys, and I know you guys love me. The silent retreat, it sounds like such a weird idea, because it's so countercultural to our community. It seems like, what do you do? Like, you just go there, and like, you look at each other, and like, what do you do? The business world has picked this up. Your company can hire a guy to come in for the outside. You pay him $2,000. They're calling it mindfulness. 
That's what's going on right now in Silicon Valley. So you can pay a guy $2,000 to come in, or you can join me on our retreat. Okay? What is this? The Christian church has been doing this practice of silence and solitude and prayer for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's just that we, as modern people, have forgotten that this is what we used to do. And what it is, is it's stepping out of all the responsibilities and all your email and all your text messages and all your Pokemon Go, and it's moving to a place where we intentionally enter into a space of silence. We enter into a place of quiet to come away and be with God. It's not for the super spiritual. It's not for the super spiritual. It's really, actually, I'd say if you're super spiritual, you don't need to do something like this. But it's for the folks that are just sort of your normal, everyday folks who maybe would want to seek to encounter God in perhaps a different way than maybe you've ever done that before. All right. That's it. The main point, always pray, don't lose heart. I'm going to end with a final quotation from this guy. His name's Richard Foster. He's a Quaker, teaches at Friends University. Um, Way back when, when we did the Good and Beautiful Community, and I know some of you guys were here for that, it's James Bryan Smith. Richard Foster was a mentor to that guy. So Richard Foster, anyway, wrote wrote this book called Prayer, and I just thought this would be important to share with us. And this is the last part of this message. Richard Foster writes, While the wilderness is necessary, it is never permanent. What we learn to do in the light of God's love, we also do in the dark of God's absence. We ask and continue to ask, even though there is no answer. It is this constant longing love that produces a firmness of life orientation in us. That firmness of life orientation, that's called faith. Jesus asks, will I find faith? Will I find a firmness of life? Will I find people praying while they're waiting? That's Jesus' question to all of us. Let me pray for us. Lord God, I thank you that you are the living God, that you are the God that hears and knows God, sometimes from our side, it feels like you're absent, if we're waiting a really long time. But God, I pray that you would help us, give us strength to endure, strengthen our faith to hold to you. God, I pray for any of us here who may be feeling particularly discouraged or hopeless or feeling like we are losing heart. God, I pray that as we continue to worship you in the communion, in the singing, in the silence, I pray, God, that your spirit would meet us. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.